people have been asking me about a lot, and, and I guess that's what do I mean by what is secular Buddhism or what is secular Dharma is the word that I use a lot. Um, sometimes I just assume people know certain things, but I because I'm doing this year-long course and all my courses now are housed, you probably have noticed that me and Shannon have a, a nonprofit called Secular Dharma Foundation. And um, a lot of people are like, well, what is secular Dharma? And, and what do you mean by that? And why is that different or better? I don't think it's better, but w- w- what is it exactly? So I'm going to actually unpack that a little bit for you this morning, and I think you'll find it to be to be helpful. Um, so where to begin with all that? So I guess the first thing to say is that the word secular is actually a largely misunderstood term. Um, just the word secular. People generally think secular means non-religious or anti-religious, which it doesn't. Um, the term secular literally, literally means, it comes from the Greek, which means seculum is the Greek. It literally means this time, this era, this place, here and now. It actually means right now. The other way you could think about it is sometimes people use the word contemporary society or contemporary life. It's also similar to that. It means the world that you live in, the world that you live in here and now, the you know, 2021 modern American culture society is, is the secular world. Um, and when we talk about it in, in uh, using secular Dharma rather than secular Buddhism, and I'll, I'll say why that, that I think that's important, is um, secular here doesn't mean, uh, it means non-monastic. It doesn't mean anti-monastic. It just means non-monastic in, in everything that that entails. I'm a non-monastic person. So a lot of the stuff that has a, mon- a monastic overtone or an undertone, a lot of that stuff, I'm not doing that stuff. And I don't suspect any of you are. Um, it also means non-mystical um, or non-sacred, um, which really means it's mostly associated with science. It's associated with things that we can verify, that we can look at, that we can use empirical science and empirical investigation and say, okay, yes, this is actually how it works. We've been able to been able to see this now again it doesn't mean anti-mystical it doesn't mean it doesn't mean a rejection or dismissiveness of that it's just meaning that's not the focus the focus is on on practicality the focus is on what we what we can do what we know we can do it's also associated with there was a guy named george holyoke an english guy in the late 1800s who wrote a wrote one of the first papers on secularity because he wanted an alternative to atheism because he thought atheism atheism was too um too aggressive of a term, so he came up with this word secularization, Uh, and it has to do with also um, naturalistic, a naturalistic approach, which also means science. There's another teacher who's also, besides Stephen Batchelor, as I'm sure you all know, I'm a huge fan of, and he's kind of been one of the leaders of this whole secular dharma, but also another teacher who's very well respected named Gil Fronsdale, who also has a a similar approach, which he he calls naturalistic dharma. And he, he, he likes the term naturalistic dharma because he is associating dharma as just a f- another function of how the natural world operates. And the Buddha was just basically trying to point out things that also work in a similar way in the natural world, like things like gravity, you know, and things like seed and fruit, which I'm sure you've all heard me talk about that many times. How does a seed coat turn into a fruit? Well, there's a process, a naturalistic process that you can engage in. Um that allows that to happen. So he has that kind of more naturalistic approach. And the theory is, and I think it's a good theory, is that if what is true in the external world, you know, seed to fruit happens in a garden, well, why wouldn't it happen in the psychological world? Why would the world of the mind, and this is a great thought, why would the world of the mind operate any differently 
than the world of agriculture or the world of physics or the world of science. Or, you know, why would there be some... It doesn't make sense, actually, that there would be a different system, that everything in the universe has to play by the same rules, is the general theory. And that's one of the things that I pushed back on. One of the things that I learned years ago from, from Andrew Olinsky is that you have, to, you have to be aware when Buddhism isn't playing by its own rules. You know, everything in the universe is impermanent, right? Everything's constantly changing, uh, uh, Nietzsche, except for the enlightened mind of the Buddha. That doesn't change. You know, so there's all these little theories where it's like everything is impermanent except for my little special, unique, mystical version of the Buddhist mind. So that's not, you know, that, 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 that's, that would make one suspicious. Um, if everything in the universe, the three lakanas, as they're called, the three characteristics, is dukkha, then how, if every single molecule and everything in the universe is subject to dukkha, then how is it that I could be practicing a path that leads to the end of that? Right? It's not playing by its own rules. So, you know, and maybe that's true. I'm not, I don't really have much of an argument there. I just think that, you know, that that's an interesting way to go about it. So that's a, a naturalistic approach would say, like, if we're taking a naturalistic, a scientific, method, methodological approach, then we have to, we ha whatever rules we've established or have recognized, we have to continue to play by these rules. And so you know, George Holyoke in his paper, he, he has two things, three things that he talks about that are sort of the criteria for secularization, which are also the, th the things that, there's a list of 10 things if you go to the Secular Buddhist Association website, which is actually a great website. Um, and so three kind of criteria around secularization, which actually are around sec secular ethics, which is the goal is to improve the quality of life for everybody. Uh, and that's material, social, it, it, racial, uh, sexual, everything. Is the goal is to improve the quality of life for everybody, to even the playing field as best we can, and in many different ways as we can. And that that can be through social change. That can be through, uh, which a lot of this is happening. But I think that putting this in the arena of Dharma practice makes it a lot more engaged with the world. Which I know that many of you are doing this. I've had many conversations with you. Some of you are doing wide awake work. Um, you know, working on diversity. There's lots of different ways we're already doing this. Um, and that science is sort of the, uh, the providence of, of, of humankind's meaning that we can trust science, actually. Uh, that if, if we're going to trust anything at this point, we should probably trust science. So then that puts climate change and things like that on the table, you know, as a Dharma practice. Um, and it's also, the, the third one, which I like, is it's actually good to do good. That to do good at change in the world and to improve yourself and to improve your relationships and to just self-improvement is actually a good idea. You pract your practice is serving everybody. Your meditation practice, your dharma practice, everything that you're doing is actually um, contributing to the quality of humankind. Oh, hold on a second here. Let me just make sure. Here we go. And so... Now, the other thing that I also do like about secular dharma is that there's an intention within the movement, and I've talked to quite a we're not we're, we're being very careful to not say to not say what it is. We're just trying to offer a broad thing here because then we'll just turn into everything we're trying to get away from thing. Well, well, what does secular dharma say about this? And what does secular dharma say about that? It's like, well, we don't actually. And so the other so this is where I kind of break from Buddhism. Buddhism is just um, 
I don't know what the right word is. It's the it, it, it's religious dharma. When dharma became religious and became monastic, it turned into Buddhism, which is a world's religion. Which is why I don't. And even me and Stephen Bowser had many conversations about if he was actually bummed that he used the word secular Buddhism as long as he did, because Buddhism is its own thing. And I and I also too. I love Buddhism. I really do. I I, I think it's great. I'm a I'm a Buddhist fanatic, you know. But uh, Buddhism is largely, uh, at least 90%, if not more, largely a monastic training. And so when, when Dharma turned into Buddhism, Buddhist tradition, it became religious. And also it became religious through the process of secularization. So when the Dharma went to China, the Dharma intermingled in, in kind of transformed and had a conversation with Chinese culture, and then it became Chan Zen Buddhism. And then when it went to Japan, and then when it went to Tibet, it became Vaj, you know, every Buddhist form of Buddhism became its form of Buddhism because it intermingled with the culture of the time. That's how it happens. So actually, this is how it's, this is how Buddhism has been happening for 2,500 years. It's not like this is new. We're just saying, well, now that we have the thing about it too that's been really important to me is I'm not I'm not a scientist by any stretch, but um, now that the Dharma has come to America, um, it's only not even been that long, you know, maybe maybe seventy five years deep. Is it's been inter it's been interacting with our culture and a lot of the people who have been acting with the people who are are a therapist and psychology and science and neuroscience and and, and so now there's this new kind of thing happening. Um, and you know, and there's a lot of pushback against that. Um, there's a there's a, there's a guy who wrote a book, uh, something called uh, someone might know whose name I forget his name. Something about Mick mindfulness, where he's a Tibetan guy who he really pushes back against the secular mindfulness thing in a very derogatory way. And he's like, you know, but it's so funny because he's like a white educated American who's like pushing back against a secular mindfulness as if he was like some fifth century Tibetan master. It's like, dude, you're like a white guy from Chicago who's like affluent. Like, you know, what, it doesn't make any sense. And so there's, and, and there's been a lot of pushback on, on that as well. And so we find, and I have arguments with my Buddhist Dharma teacher friends all the time. In fact, what I've slowly dubbed the silent closing of doors because I, I'm getting a lot less invitations these days to do things because people are uh, not happy with my presentation um, because it breaks with tradition. Um, and it's ironic, too. And I, I mean, I also am a fan of the tradition at the same time, but I think that, and I think that most of us will probably agree, I'd be happy to hear what you all think about this, but there's just too much good information out there right now to not bring that stuff into Dharma work. You know, you look at like addiction and recovery or psychotherapy or trauma therapy or all these things that most of you have done to some degree or actually have do for a living, right? You know, it, it would just be at this point, I think, foolish to not bring Dharma to all these wonderful things that we've developed that my friend Eve Ekman calls um, Western contemplative traditions. We actually do have Western contemplative traditions in the United States, mostly through the work of neuroscientists, the work of cognitive scientists, the work of different therapies. We got some great shit now. And it would be really wise, I think, to blend the content. So that's really what the Secular Dharma Foundation's goal is, is to blend 
the contemplative philosophical traditions of early Buddhism into and with some of the things that we find are helpful now, you know, EMDR and parts work and uh, gestalt and, and somatic. And there's, there's a whole list I could go on and on and on. And I find that when we do that, we end up with a secular dharma. And everybody might have a different version of it, which I think is actually great because now we're not having to, now there's no intention to create or to adhere to a set of orthodox or beliefs or here's what secular dharma practice is. It's like, no, you decide. Some of you know, a lot of folks, a lot of you folks are in recovery, a lot of you aren't. Right, so so your secular dharma is going to look different than mine, and it's going to look different than the person on the screen to the left of you. Everybody's secular dharma should actually look a little different, and I think that that's really respectful of our subjective experience. And you know, ultimately, you're the expert on you anyway. Um, and so there's a there's a um, there's an acknowledgement of the power of, of mindfulness, of the, the first-person uh, inquiry into your own direct experience, you know, that you all do that. You all look into your experience, and you become the expert on you. You become the expert on your experience in the, in the confines of your own laboratory. Uh, and, you know, we can talk to other teachers. I mean, I talk to you all the time, right? We can talk about this. How's it going? What are you finding? What's going on? What's working? But ultimately, you're the expert on you, and you're going to be going to be the one who's going to decide and you might decide that there's certain uh, Tibetan meditation practices that you really like, that you really value. And you say, I like these, I'm going to use these. Go, well, go ahead then. Or there might be certain things. Uh, it's interesting, the more secular I become, the more tolerant of Buddhism I become. I'm like, I actually like some of the Zen stuff. I'm going to use some of that. I'm going to practice some Zen. I like that. It allows me to kind of cherry pick in a way where I'm just saying, yeah, um, have at it. You know, take what you want, leave the rest. Um, and I think that that's a very respectful way to approach it. And so the other reason why I think that we use early Buddhism, so then that, then that becomes a part of the conversation and the pushback I get is they're like, well, then why are you so um, convinced that early Buddhism is the kind of, why are you, why do you plant your flag there if, you, if you're having this perspective? Well, I would just say that I'm actually just going back to the secular world of Gautama. I'm just going back and saying, well, what was the guy who invented this stuff, the Buddha himself, what was going on in his secular world? Um, and so that's why I pull from that, because um, I think it's more authentic. It's more likely to be the case. Um, and I'm very interested in him, him as a secular person, which he really was. Even actually to say secular Dharma is almost redundant, because there's nothing non-secular about the core teachings of the Dharma. It's very practical. He was a very secular person. He he was very political. He was very social. He was very much involved in his culture, in the world of his time. He wasn't this sort of blissed out dude wandering around India in, in these robes, like giving these elaborate dharma talks. I mean, that was some of what he did. But mostly, he was dealing with he was dealing with the kings. He was dealing with armies. He was dealing with his family. He was dealing with all the people who wanted to kill him. He had, I think he had a pretty hard life, actually. I think he dealt with all kinds of a very elaborate, sophisticated bullshit, frankly. And, uh, and there's a lot of evidence to say that he did. So a lot, the way that I think about it is, 
is merging his secular life with our secular life, because I think the philosophy, if we use that word now, I think the philosophy of early Buddhism, uh, the reframing of the four truths as tasks and looking at some of these lists, reorganizing these lists, which we've done, is the... And this is just something that I've noticed, and I've had, I've had a couple conversations with some neuroscientists about this who've interviewed me for different, different themes on this, is that the farther back you go in Buddhism, like, you know, you go into the canon, the more what the Buddha is saying in the early canon is much more in line with what folks are saying now. Like, even the neuroscientists are being like, yeah, this, this early version of what this guy is saying, we're seeing this, like, in brain scan images, you know, and and as as it Buddhism or as the Dharma kind of evolved, it became more religious and it became more mystical and it became more like the the mind of the Buddha is sort of Buddhist heaven, and so which is kind of what people do, right? We want it to be special and magical and unique, and we want we like that. That's a very attractive idea for some, not for me so much, frankly, but um, that's just sort of how it's played out. And so that's why I think the, the philosophy of the original teachings really work really well because we find lots of parallels. Like even MBSR, which I think is sort of the gold standard for mindfulness training, um, John Kabat-Zinn, who gets, he gets a lot of pushback too, but John Kabat-Zinn's fucking awesome. You know, MBSR is awesome. You know, all that, and, and a lot of the skills and the techniques, the, the kind of um, gold standard of skills and techniques in MBSR are straight out of the early canon. John will even admit it now. He couldn't admit it in the 80s and the 90s, but now that the, now that the kind of cat's out of the bag, you know, he can kind of say, yeah, well, you know, we, we, he's like, I came up with this from the five hindrances. You know, I heard Joseph Goldstein give a talk on the five hindrances at IMS in like 1975, and then that gave me the idea for this whole thing. You know, he'll actually say that now, um, which is awesome. So um, I thought we could do a practice uh, on this, and so I guess the practice would be and I think the blending here is trying to, and I've used this analogy a lot, is that there's a map and there's a territory. And that we're using Dharma maps, we're using the teachings, the philosophical teachings, the contemplative teachings, the ethical teachings as a kind of map uh, to navigate. So why, why have the map, right? Well, the map is only as good as your ability to navigate the map. And the territory, of course, is you. Your mind, your body, your thoughts, your memories, your views, your opinions, everything that makes you, you. And then when we overlay the map in the territory, we, we, we learn more about how we, how we are and how we do. John Peacock does this in a talk. I think it's in the course. There's a John Peacock course talk in the, uh, early on in the uh, mentoring program in Rizuka. It's really good. And he says one of the functions, one of the key functions of the word sati, mindfulness, that nobody actually points out is it means to learn so when you do these practices I, I, I mean how many of you have learned a whole bunch of stuff about yourself since you've been doing this some of the stuff you've learned about yourself is not such great news after all some of it is really great news and then there's just a range right it's like and I think that that's really where where the honesty comes in it's like the more that we're willing to learn and, 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 and to want to learn um why do I do, well, how, come, how come in this area of my life I don't do so good? Right? And instead of being, so what happens when I find it is an area in my life that I don't do so good, my tendency is to either blame the external source or uh, defend uh, my internal reaction or to be in denial. That's my general acclamation when something in my life isn't working well. I'm like, well, it's because of the, 
it's because of them or her or whoever. And, and so that that's not so good. So I've learned that. I've learned that when I have to encounter parts of my life that I struggle with, my tendency is to kind of blame and be defensive. And uh, I've yet to find this, the, the list of teachings where blaming and defensiveness are qualities of awakening. <laughs> I don't think it's in there. So part of it is we'll just do actually some light guided practice, but part of it is to really, and I think this is part of the first path practice we talked about, is to really to embrace, to fully know, um, to be, to actually want to be the expert on you. You know, to really want to be the expert on you because it's really, you know, it's your best ally. Um, and so I'll, I'll, I'll walk you through this a little bit and then we can do some, um, some discussion. <clears throat> 